trust the movement I negate the chaos Uplift the negative I'll show up at the table Again and again and again I'll close my mouth and learn to listen Greetings and welcome fellow wonders to the donkey and the bridge A podcast that brings you diverse voices of resilient wisdom Joining me today is friend, sex educator, dancer, writer, kink advocate, ritualist, and community worker, Zahava Gris. Zahava, also known as Z, identified by they-them pronouns, is the founder of Embody More Love, providing dance, coaching, kink education, performance ritual, and bodywork. Z has a unique approach to healing race and gender oppression through the body, building meaningful relationships, and demonstrating our shared passions. Z is gender transcendent and a contributing author to Queer Magic, Power Beyond Boundaries, and the recently released Sacred Body Wisdom, Igniting the Flame of Our Divine Humanity. Z currently directs Do Good Things with Power, a leadership immersion for facilitators who are transforming our culture of intimacy. Z has been touring workshops, erotic grief rituals, and dance performances across the U.S. and Europe. You can learn more and subscribe to their newsletter and find upcoming events at www.embodymorelove.com. So thank you, Z, for joining me today from your home in Oakland. I've been looking forward to interviewing you for a while. Yay! I'm delighted to be here. Um... So we've known each other for several years, mostly through the Earth Dance community and the Touch and Play community. And I think of you as someone, I just, I keep seeing you showing up over and over. And um, and I'm really grateful to have you as a friend and part of our community for what you bring. And um yeah, I just wanted to start off with that and just saying appreciate yeah. all the work that you've done and I've seen the struggles over the years and the many um, lives that you've changed and impacted, including my own. Mm, thank you. Oh, for this sweet thing. Yeah, I'm so grateful to be in each other's lives and also to have really potent and inspiring conversations, which I look forward to having with you now. <laughs> May yeah, they continue. We, we like never run out of interesting things to talk about when we are hanging out. Mm-hmm. Um, I started off the podcast with the song that I asked you to to send my way to choose a song that represented maybe the, the things that you're passionate about and moved by, and that was the song "Resilient" by Rising Appalachia. And um, the first and last verse. Uh, and I looked them up, really struck me, and I could see the connection with a lot of the work that you do. The lyrics are, I am resilient, I trust the movement. I negate the chaos, uplift the negative. I'll show up at the table again and again and again. I'll close my mouth and learn to listen. Mm. And I think it's that image that I have of you, of showing up at the table again and again and again um, in a way that is incredibly active and powerful, but also leaves a lot of space. And I recognize your immense skill in listening as well. And I know in conversations that I've had with you, um, I often feel like I can talk to you about things that perhaps 
I can't really openly discuss in a, it's a useful and respectful way with, um, with some people. Mm. And so I'm wondering how much of that you resonate with in the lyrics and the idea of wow. showing up and again and again, but in a way that also allows space. Mm. That's, oh my gosh, I'm just sitting here like, wow, thank you. <laughs> like uh, receiving that. And yeah, I think so much of relationship is about who we get to be in the presence of each other, not just the things we get to tell each other um, or say at each other. And uh, Rising Up Oasia is my favorite band and also have been friends of mine um, for years and are from a part of the country that uh, is not as well known. Um, <laughs> and so they bring light to um, an experience that's not as visible in mainstream America. And that also resonates for me um, because I am you know, from the Appalachian Mountains. My mom is from Kentucky and connecting with them and the power of their resilience and their uplifting and their understanding about the strength of relationship have all been deeply resonant for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you, I've just recently, you just sent me a chapter in an upcoming book called Sacred Body Wisdom. And mm-hmm. the name of your chapter is Transforming the Culture of Whiteness in Dance and Sexuality Communities. And I didn't know some of, I didn't know a lot of your biography, actually. Mm -hmm. Um, And you talk about having a Jewish father from New York and um, mother from, was it Kentucky? Mm Mm-hmm. And in some ways, I'm interested in how those two identities, you know, being, let's say, Jewish, New York, and white Appalachia are two of them almost like on the very fringes of whiteness, you might say, (laughs) both in terms of being racialized, but also in terms of class and poverty. Um, And in many ways, New York City and Appalachia are also like not considered like the center of whiteness, you know, in many ways. And then along comes you, (laughs) (laughs) who is the meeting of those two places. And I'm wondering what yeah, your experience of whiteness growing up. I'm not sure what age you left um, the Appalachian Mountains. Well, but I'm wondering if you can, yeah, just kind of speak to your own experience of let's say, yeah. whiteness and white identity. Yeah, so I actually didn't grow up in Kentucky, but I, I grew up in Virginia. Okay. Um, and every year I would regularly visit my family lands in Kentucky and New York. And so I was, you know, code switching my whole life, not only because they were two incredibly different cultures, religions, class backgrounds, education backgrounds, dialects. um, And, but also because My dad had been a sociologist at Princeton University studying my mother's people. And so I was living between many realities, um, you know, between that of the of the sociologist and the people they're studying 
and and also the only thing that they had in common was being white and i thought well what the hell is whiteness if it doesn't mean any of these other shared things and i became really fascinated by this um kind of by how whiteness um did not represent or acknowledge all of these other parts of what made up our culture and who we've come from and even our day-to-day experience and yet there was this shared social power of being white and um so for me when i started it wasn't until 1999 when i was in college that i finally came across an opportunity to be in a an educational space about deconstructing whiteness and up until that point i knew i was very uncomfortable with what i was experiencing but i didn't have a language or a community to dismantle it with hmm. and when i hit that point i was 19 and it was one of the most transformative transformative kind of rites of passage in my life because now there was a way to talk about that which i knew wasn't true and um I also discovered that more it was more likely that people of color had a shared experience of code switching with me and that a lot of my other white friends who had come from parents with more backgrounds that were similar to each other they didn't have necessarily the same experience that I did of living in this gap and they didn't have the same kind of perspective but my my friends who were people of color had a much more similar experience to me in that they were like oh there is the kind of mainstream visible reality that were kind of practiced in showing up through that lens and then there's like our real life right and, and can... so go ahead well it was just such a relief for me because uh that was the beginning of me being able to not feel alone and to start to bridge that gap between what is truth and and how we're allowed to show up or who we're supposed to be. Right. Yeah. And it's just struck me now as you're explaining this um that can relate in many ways having grown up, you know, to Greek immigrant parents and speaking Greek before English growing up in Toronto and um mm. not just code switching but language switching you know between the the language of home which was greek and then the language of english which was like you know school in the street mm-hmm. and how intensely i was always terrified of like greek slipping out when i was with my friends at school or playing cuz sometimes i would reply in greek or something you know would kind of slip out and friends would kind of look at me like like i've just become someone else you know and it was this really kind of disciplining regulating of my body and my speech to really keep those two things separate mm-hmm. and navigate spaces accordingly mm-hmm. um and i'm i guess i'm fascinated by these the richness of diversity within what we might call whiteness and all the many layers and all the parts of ourselves that we either deny or foreground in order to pass in certain spaces and in certain communities. 
Um, and part of, you know, so what I love about um, how you come to a lot of this is first and foremost that you're a dancer and that your medium is the body and its many, its many wisdoms. And um, I'm assuming you went to college for dance? Was yeah. That right or? Yeah. yeah, I mean, I'm I'm a dancer. <clears throat> that is like my core mm -hmm. <laughs> identity, <laughs> and I love that we know each other through that, through dance. And when I, you know, I I went to a lot of schools. I I went to Juilliard and then Tisch School of the Arts at NYU and then Sarah Lawrence. And I was kind of hopping around um, because dance was so meaningful to me, but. But many of those programs, including all the ones I just mentioned, were were filtered through white academia and didn't mm -hmm. necessarily relate to the wholeness of, of who we are. And so my I ended up graduating undergrad from Sarah Lawrence College with a focus in race relations, community building and dance. And those mm. were my three areas, which I would say are probably still at the heart of my life. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering, what did you learn about whiteness as a dancer? Hmm. <laughs> I'm like, what, which part? <laughs> I mean, I know that the, the chapter, like, the chapter oh, yeah. in your upcoming book talks about your experiences. You know, you talk about like ballet school and the Nutcracker and all these um, mm -hmm. kind of yeah. uh, markers of whiteness in our culture. And in many ways, dance, you know, is such a white symbol um at least particular aspects of dance mm -hmm. yeah um, for me so i started taking dance class when i was two i'm now 38 so i have had the experience of going to so many different events and trainings and performances that everyone was calling dance <laughs> but you know they've been in different cultures and different countries and what i started to see was that um, the way a group of people defines dance is so culturally specific. Um, mm. And so while the first 20 years of my dance training was ballet, um, that's often what happens when you're socialized as a white American girl. And so mm -hmm. my parents, with the best of intentions, were like, what do we do with this young person who can't stop moving around and loves to fly? You know, we'll send them to ballet. And, you know, in that experience, uh, I I did not realize until later when I started doing West African and Middle Eastern and Sufi dance meditation that dance could be so many other things. And that ballet had actually been a microcosm of a lot of what learning to be white is. And it wasn't until I was really in these other dance spaces where there was more focus on sensuality, on being a community rather than competition, on um, dancing for, uh, for spirituality, for healing, for self-expression, as opposed to in ballet, where it was a lot more about controlling your body and, and being an image of being a tool for someone else's message and creativity and upholding a certain more traditional skinny white symmetrical uh athletically virtuosic build 
um, you know, that I started to gain more perspective on how um, ballet had taught me to show up as a human being and how that wasn't actually how I wanted to, but it was, it was um, creating a cultural environment that I had been taught was normal in a white society. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Can we talk about power and control? <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, one of the biggest things that I got from that is my ballet teachers. I mean, I, I laugh now, but like I'm a kink educator as well. And that is mm-hmm. that is one of the ways that I explore control where you have you explore dominance and submission and so um what I realized was my ballet teachers and the directors of my ballet schools had been my first doms had been the first people who were really Mm. controlling my body you know how I move my body what I put my attention on while I'm moving my body um you know doing the nutcracker so many years over and over again as opposed to the more culturally relevant work that I saw my friends of color creating um, or then got to perform in later when I was dancing with Urban Bushwoman or Catherine Dunham. But, but essentially I was like, oh, my dance teachers in ballet never asked for me. Uh, they never um, addressed it as you are you have agency and let's navigate a power dynamic that is going to demonstrate respect for you Mm -hmm. um and so for me when i came i kind of went through this what i call my bunhead recovery (laughs) my like emerging out of my ballet brain and I started to learn that a lot of other people who had been to through the military and were recovering from the military had a very mm. similar experience as those of us recovering from ballet. Um, and because of the extent of conformity and uh, and physical rigor and discipline that was in our in our culture and the relation to unquestioned authority. And so for me, kink was like this deeply refreshing, oh my God, we can be human and acknowledge that power dynamics are happening everywhere. It's just a matter of, are we recognizing them, acknowledging them and, and designing them in a way that's mutually beneficial to everyone? Or are we not recognizing them and, and just kind of perpetuating more of the, the colonizing authority um you know the model of i will tell you what to do based on things that are about social rank or age privilege or you know unearned privilege Mm -hmm. right versus kink where everything is is based in you you earn your role of power because Mm. who you are inspires respect I don't, so I'm assuming they don't talk about this in ballet, but I've always been fascinated by its history, you know, and like the French Enlightenment and the idea, the very lofty idea of, you know, exerting absolute control over matter, you know, through 
rationalization and symmetry and mathematics and all this and everything about ballet aesthetically is the you know the personification of these ideals mm -hmm. which um you know it's coming after the french revolution was responding in itself to to something coping with something and i'm always torn between understanding whiteness as a lack of culture or the absence of culture versus it is actually a culture and what i see it centered on is power um and it's very much in relation to the other you know power is exerted is negotiated through relating to the other whether it's nature whether it's bodies of color whether it's to one's own body um and i know you've gone so deeply into this and my first question on this is what is power how could you explain your understanding of power to people mm. oh wow well i'm still um taking in what you just said because sure uh um power you know when you say i don't know if there is a culture a white culture and yet it, it, the, the the through line is is power in that in that context the power that you're speaking of is about an unnegotiated hierarchy mm -hmm. and um one that does not support the humanity of those in control or those being controlled and what i <laughs> i have this leadership training called do good things with power you know mm -hmm. because power itself is not uh inhumane it you know the way that we use it um is a reflection of our own values and our respect or lack of respect for each other. And so what I what I think of as power is the ex I think someone is powerful to the extent that we know who we really are. We know who we have come from. We know what we want and we see the possibility of creating what we want in a way where we're making a difference we're contributing and we're we're um, creating that which we have come here to create so that others can can feel our love and support and that is power and when someone says oh you're not you know you're not respecting my power or you're using your power in a you know you're abusing your power i think what they're talking about is is different <laughs> you know i think what what they're really talking about is you have forgotten who you are and you have forgotten um to focus um our attention on what is true and what we want to create together um you know and and what i see when i think about white culture is a deep fear 
of losing control. But someone who is truly powerful knows their power even when they're not in control. Mm-hmm. And I'm also, what I do see a lot in our communities is also um, an intense distrust of power and an abdicating of one's power or handing over one's power. Um, <clears throat> it's almost like if anybody is seen as having power, then the reaction is to almost break them down um, because there's such a fear of power being abused mm-hmm. that almost like it, the reaction, or the trauma reaction becomes, okay, nobody can have power. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in your work and even just in your <laughs> life, how does one integrate um, a healthier relationship with power itself, you know, a way of like mm-hmm. holding it and owning it and doing good with it um, while also perhaps learning to trust that others' power, you know, is not necessarily going to harm, but to also allow and support it. And so it's mm-hmm. not this scarcity, the scarce resource that has to be, you know, always fought over and negotiated as if there's not enough of it to go around. Yeah. Oh. Well, you know, I, I appreciate how you're asking that. Um, so what I'm, what I am interested in is creating alternatives to the shadow of power abuse you know um just as you said if people are so afraid that someone who's a leader or someone who's in control doesn't have the best interest of others in mind then it's like a black or white space you know and it's like oh well i don't I don't trust absolute power, so let's try to just do everything equal. You know, like, let's be Mm -hmm. these (laughs) kind of, like, genderless, everyone is equal, everyone's voice is the same. And that doesn't necessarily serve us um, because there's something deeply important about conscious power dynamics. And the simplest place to see that is a parent-child relationship. Mm-hmm. Right, and so what? What? What I'm interested in in my work is supporting people to start to see where power dynamics are really thriving, and everyone involved is benefiting. So when you've got an adult who's making a choice for a child so that they can have a healthy meal or go to sleep and get enough rest, we can say, "Oh yeah, that's a simple example of where." a power dynamic is beneficial for everyone involved and is based on on you know what's true for these individuals in this moment it's not just re- repeating a pattern um and so my work around kink is inviting people to explore power dynamics in a very present and uh curious and respectful way where they can practice through touch and through dance and through uh bringing erotic intention if that is present there um 
and have these exchanges with each other where they get to try on, I would like to feel your certainty, your confidence, your deep responsibility to guide me. And then vice versa, I would like to feel your deep trust and respect and receptivity. And together, being in a temporary hierarchical experience that we're choosing and excited about exploring with each other, we can start to tap into the healing of the archetypes of, of the dominant and the sub or the guide and the surrenderer. We can start to have a positive experience that can open up the possibility that conscious power dynamics are possible, that are, are actually a natural part of being a human being, that they enliven us in a way that doesn't happen when we're just trying to mute out everyone and make us all the same. Mm-hmm. I feel really moved by something you shared in there that um, the healing power of being in relation with someone who can consciously and ethically and like productively hold and exert their power, mm-hmm. um, which is not the same thing as being safe. Right. And that's a dynamic that I don't, I don't personally feel is highlighted and foregrounded enough. You know, the idea that it can't simply be about boundaries and limits and safety, which of course are huge parts of healing and of just, you know, being a viable living being. Um, but how powerful it is to be in the presence of someone, let's say an elder, who can hold their power in an ethical way. And I don't feel we have very many models of that in our culture and in our communities. And I was, I'm going to say, I don't think, in my understanding when I was younger, I didn't think of kink and BDSM as places where that is obvious or that work is obvious, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's actually been through our, some of our conversations and, um, and conversations with people that have taken your classes that I'm especially interested in the, the idea of surrendering, actually, and the power of surrendering. Um, because in our culture, we do frame things as power over, you know, every relationship gets analyzed as who is the oppressor and who is the oppressed. And Mm -hmm. I think it's, there are of course relationships that reflect that, but I also think it's problematic to approach every relationship through that framework and through, you know, that black, white, as you said. So I'm wondering, there is so much focus on domination and being able to dominate and being in control, but can you talk about the power of surrendering a bit? (laughs) yeah you know um whether you want to or not it is something that being human asks of us to surrender um because it means accepting what is and you know the simplest place that we experience that is just by being a body you know, we don't choose when we die. We don't, 
necessarily choose our metabolism or our skin color or um, you know who we have come from in our ancestral lineage and so what it looks like when you don't surrender <laughs> is that you're constantly like rejecting what is true about your body and who you've come from and the society that you're in and your maybe some of your life circumstances or even that they're only 24 hours in a day and you're constantly uh, resisting seeing what is true and so it's hard for you to act from a place of of wisdom and possibility in a meaningful way and and surrender is when you are willing to grieve. You are willing to be with the discomfort that comes with being human. Um, you're willing to uh, give attention to that which makes you deeply question what you thought you knew. Hmm. And, and kink is just one way that someone can start to practice those skills. Um, but, and, and, and the way that it does that is it says, all right, you know, the art of surrender is not about the, the kind of stereotype is, oh, you become a doormat and you, ex and you kind of check out or disassociate. And then maybe you have trauma afterwards, right? That's the, that's the fear story. But, but the art of learning surrender, of learning submission, is I, I trust this person that I am with so deeply. I trust myself to speak what I would really like, what are, what are the, limits that I'm not open to uh, exploring. I, I trust myself to stay in communication, that the pathway between me sensing what is true in this moment and my voice and my ability to speak my truth is a clear, open pathway. And I'm able to be uh, deeply masterful at self-regulating my own fear responses and being able to stay within a range of stimulation where I can, as the sub, be fully present and here and also allow something interesting to happen in my system because I am saying yes while I'm being uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. And that very... Uh, that art, I will call it an art, <laughs> is so transformative because the you you in in asking me to do this interview, you you wrote the sentence that really stayed with me about like what is the role of kink and sexuality in decolonizing? And I sat with it and I was like, you know, this very gap that I'm describing to you right now about what surrender is mm -hmm. is is this space of um, traversing from um, who you've been told to be or what you already know to be safe and then traversing across to what is actually true, what deeply enlivens you, 
what deeply moves you and being able to companion, to allow someone to companion you as you traverse that gap. And in a kink scene, that is being deeply present with a dominant who is affirming that you belong as you move through your fears and learn more about who you are. And in a, in a larger decolonizing context, it is that willingness to be like, oh wow, the way I've been participating in society and culture is not actually representing what's important to me. And I am now on a journey <laughs> traversing that and moving towards the person that I want to be. And that means redesigning my gender and my way of relating to race and the way I understand what leadership is and the way I understand what building relationship is. And I am on that journey of closing that gap and reorganizing myself. See, there's like 15 things I need to come back to. Yeah, yeah, great, great. <laughs> all that because it's, <laughs> it's like we're circling around the thing. Do you know what I mean? It's like there's like whiteness and dance and surrender and power and grief. Yeah. There's something about that constellation that um, produces really fucked up things in this world. Let me put it that way. Um, and I don't mean that as in like, there's a lot of compassion when I say fucked up things. Like there's, there's a lot of harm. There's a lot of lostness and homelessness. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we talked earlier about you know, code switching and coming from different cultures. And I can say because of my, you know, growing up within, you know, like a large pocket, but still a pocket of kind of Greek community within, you know, Protestant white North America that I don't sense the same degree of um, unintegration of grief and surrender in Greek culture that I do in like Protestant white North American culture. If I can make like a huge sweeping generalization, like I know something else in my body other than simply, you know, shame and struggling to control all the time and to, cons to exert dominance over everybody else that you perceive yourself in competition with. Um, and it comes out in the culture and the dance, you know? <laughs> like I grew up doing, um, you know, Greek folk dancing all the time at school and at weddings and all these things. And I always felt such a huge difference between that space and that way of moving and relating to each other versus, you know, quote, dance in like a dominant culture, which always felt so much about negotiating status and judgment and self-judgment and judgment of others. Um, and I guess part of me then I'm like, <laughs> my reaction to that is like, what happened back there? You know, what has happened that, um, dance, something that is so central to all cultures and so central to identity and collective identity and expression and sensuality has been so colonized in itself. Because um, I do believe there is a strong relationship between dance and sexuality. You know, they're not the same thing, but there is something about it's such a primal way of expressing, you know, through dance and through sexuality. Um, 
I don't know if this gets to a question at any point. It can come in at any point. Well, I, I would say, you know, um, last April I was uh, teaching, I was one of the lead teachers at the Touch and Play in Asheville, North Carolina, and there was a, we were hosted by this, uh, at Earth Haven, and there was this remembering of Tantra, of the lineage of Tantra where dance and sexuality and spirituality were all one, you know, this, this predated colonization <laughs> and, and they were all, um, it was understood that moving our bodies with intention and in community and with love was deeply transformative, was deeply part of the human experience. And I think, you know, as you, spoke to before one of the key things of what what white culture is given that white culture is a is a social construction it's not like white people have a shared history or ethnicity mm -hmm. or place of origin but what it has come from has been colonization and if you want to control people you teach them to lose their own connection to their dance, to their spirit, and to their sex. Because those are the fundamental things that remind us of our humanness. So in today's world, you know, as, as a person who, has, who is white, who is, you know, moving through the world sharing the power of dance and sexuality and spirituality and looking bravely in the face of colonization and the history that we come from you know this is the ultimate way of being deeply present with discomfort is to say i am going to be this integrated and this in my wholeness and this alive in my pussy in my heart in my visioning for the future and I know that the body is central is our greatest ally in the healing of what this time this era is asking of us as white people yeah no I hear you and um, yeah. if I can share, just to connect to that, if I can share um, an excerpt of uh, something that you wrote in the, in the chapter in this upcoming book, um, which I believe was you sharing like your own kind of like inner, you know, thought patterns um, and doubts and judgments around, um, you know, being the this kind of the central person for um, working around issues of diversity and inclusivity, inclusivity at this um, at the Touch and Play Festival that we had at Earth Dance this past summer, um, and because I think part of it is I think for those of us that are of European descent, who also want to, you know, decolonize and support the struggle for ethical society, I'm going to put it like, you know, the huge umbrella of what ethical society means and how different identities are marginalized or not within that. Yeah, so I'm going to share this quote that you're talking about 
you know, kind of thought patterns that are running through your head. So things such as, they don't care as much as I do. Why don't they understand how important this is? I'm so frustrated I was born as a white person. I shouldn't step into leadership. What can I contribute? I'm white. Let's just kick out all the white people in power and start over from scratch. I want to do something, but I don't know what to do. It's not going to be enough. I don't think it's really going to change. I tried saying something before and it didn't work. Why would people of color want to come join us anyway? Um, so first of all, I just wanted to you know, appreciate you just being honest about some of these, the self-talk and the doubts that come through for you. And I think for many of us, we can definitely resonate with a lot of that. Because um, it does feel like this impossible bind, you know, in a lot of ways of like being identified as white, benefiting from being identified as white. And at the same time, how do you act on that? How do you do something about it? And what are all the internalized messages about what it means to be white that we have to also contend with? Um, yeah, and that passage um, was was written not because I actually believe those things, but because mm -hmm. what I noticed was the sound of the thoughts that I was tired of thinking sounded like that. Mm -hmm. And that the ability to observe them and write them down and be like, you know what, this is not actually true, but any time that my attention kind of gets hijacked by this way of thinking, I can recognize it more clearly. I can almost anticipate that those thoughts may come up and they don't have to have power over me anymore because I'm more interested in creating a culture of interconnectedness. And I know that if I can sniff out those thoughts in myself or even when other people might be <laughs> starting to hear that kind of dialogue mm -hmm. that it doesn't have to be where we continue to give our attention because that's not actually going to create what we want but we also need to be at peace and unafraid of acknowledging them so that when they come up we can be like oh yeah thanks for sharing and now I'm going to bring my attention to something that's way more interesting to me mm-hmm what has really struck me about those same let's say voices or messages is mm -hmm. the relationship between let's say let's call it white guilt um or feeling shame for one's culture or their community or their ancestry and the role of grief in healing that relationship yeah. um, and i know it took me a long time to understand that connection um because there's so much you know, I've been living in Europe the last bunch of years, in the UK specifically, and I didn't know almost any of the history of what happened over there, you know, before people washed up on these shores. And there's such a stark pattern that emerges that's so obvious of colonization, you know, in Europe itself to begin with, where a lot of these kinds of um, corrupted 
relationships with power, for example, were already long established before people came over here to um, the Americas or anywhere outside of Europe. Um, and I'm wondering if you can speak a bit more to the role of grief in connecting in a more healthy way with one's own sexuality, with one's own ancestry, you know, with one's own identity, and how kink might also serve that as well. Sorry, that's a big, long <laughs> request. Mm, wow. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, I think a simple place to start is that um, grief is one of the emotional states that is most transformative. Um, in fact, often it might be covered by layers of anger or numbness, um, you know, emotions that are, that, uh, are kind of more superficial. And grief is like emptying the drain and allowing the things that we are, um, the things that we care about the most, allowing ourselves to be present with how much we miss them or we have lost them. Because grief is really, uh, the is an indication of what is most important to us hmm. and what we love. So in our, in our society, um, in a white American society, there is very little uh, cultural ritual around supporting someone's grief. And, and so we often see that the, that the body, without that outlet, that the body um, can respond by disassociating or getting physical tension or, you know, uh, road rage is an example of unprocessed grief. My, my grief teacher used to say, my grief teacher was Sabanfu Some from uh, the Dagara tribe of Burkina Faso. And, and Sabanfu um, grew up in a culture where there were regularly grief rituals. And she then came to live in Oakland, California, where I live now. And she was like, oh my God, the people here need this even more than the people back home. And she devoted her life. She, uh, she passed about a year ago now, but she devoted her life to bringing the wisdom of those traditions from the Dagara tribe here to the West. And I had the honor of being present with her for some of those rituals. And it was absolutely transformative in a way that for me as a white person, I didn't even know what I was missing until I went into those rituals. And I was like, oh my God, this is such a different way to be human, to be in touch with my heart, to allow myself to feel the loss. And that kind of grief is not only about our personal losses, but it is about our collective losses and our ancestral losses. And what Sabanfu would talk about was that really what grief is, is finishing, being willing to finish our ancestors' unfinished business. Hmm. And so 
part of that being a dancer being an embodied being is that it is a it is going into uh the wisdom of the body being being willing to soften and shake and tremble and become loud and messy and to let people that we love hold us through it and the physicality of that kind of trembling that happens it, it happens in interesting states it happens in grief it's very similar in orgasm in deep laughter and that other place that i find it is that quiver zone when you're doing like a really good sit up but your mind mm -hmm. is peaceful and in all of those places the body trembles and it kind of reorganizes it's almost the intersection of the voluntary and involuntary nervous system and so it is not something that you can force yourself to do it is something that you have to allow yourself to do and it goes back to this conversation we were just having about surrender. There's a quality of I surrender to how deeply I care about this thing that I will now allow myself to grieve it. And the rituals that Sabanfu offered us supported us because there would be a large gathering of us. We were not doing this alone. It was very mm -hmm. much about being together. There was a uh, there was music and rhythm and we were uh, bowing at the altar in the presence of our you know ancestral photos and so there was this deep support of community of ancestor of ritual of music of rhythm that allowed our thinking brain to relax to not have to figure out or analyze that which which we were grieving and to let the wisdom of our body take over and soften and go into that trembling and go into what I call the waters of the soul. And for me, that's the wetness of our eyes when we cry, the wetness of our sex when we release, but to go into the sweat that may come through us, to go into that deep state of, of tremble and acceptance and to let the wisdom of our bodies reorganize who we are mm. and who we are together. And that's the thing that I think keeps coming up for me is um, both in around grief and around sexuality. These are collective. Um, what would be the word? Collective wisdoms and things that need to be expressed collectively. I think so much of our culture has collapsed everything down to the individual, you know, and everything becomes internalized and the power of grieving together and the power of collective sexuality, let's say, um, is something that has been so shamed, you know, in our culture. Mm -hmm. um, and something that you've taught me over time is the idea of building community resilience, um, which is different from, I mean, say healing, you know, individual or collective trauma, but the idea of resilience, I looked up the, the etymology of the word resilience, and it has to do, it's like that energy of leaping, of jumping. It's like the actual energy of the momentum of leaping. It's almost like the ability to 
not just move, but to like change states. Mm -hmm. And it's always been incredible to me that when I've taken part in grief rituals and grief work, that the collective nervous system, you know, is used by the group to touch something that I think as individuals is much harder. Um, again, unless we're, you know, trained in it or it's normalized from a young age in our culture. Mm -hmm. um, have you come across like keening rituals, like in Ireland, for example? No. <clears throat> Do you know about this? This is um, old women, usually widows, who oh. would be paid to attend a wake. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the tradition is mostly gone, but you can go online, you can find recordings of it. And it's, it's really, you know, it's this very plaintive kind of wailing. And it is words. It'll usually be in, in Gaelic if it's Ireland. Um, but what's understood is that they are so in touch with um, grief, mm -hmm. probably because their age and how many people they've lost and they know so many endings, that mm -hmm. they're able to hit a certain frequency. It really is like a certain frequency, a sound frequency, a feeling frequency that literally gets like the waters flowing, especially for the family members, you know, so that they can release and grieve mm. um, and not have the burden of, you know, having to be on and having to be the hosts and things like that. And I just found out recently that, you know, in Greek culture, that's also been a long tradition that has mostly disappeared as well. Mm, yeah. This, um, one of the, people who deeply inspires me is Adrienne Marie Brown, and she wrote a definition of resilience in her book, Emergent Strategy, which I highly recommend. And for her, she was saying resilience is the ability to become strong, healthy, or successful again after something bad happens. The mm -hmm. ability of something to return to its original shape after it has been pulled, stretched, bent, etc or an ability to recover from or adjust easily to misfortune or change. And for me, you know, I talk a lot about shame resilience, which, which is an idea Brene Brown uh, came up with. Um, but there's quality of strengthening who we are together so that the circumstances that challenge us the most are part of our growth rather than obstacles to us having the life we want or showing up in the ways we want to and for me like kink and grief rituals and dance rituals are all really powerful ways to have a very visceral experience of resilience and community so can you give an example of like what community resilience building through kink might look like for example either yeah through um, things you've taught or things you've experienced or things you've had modeled for you yeah that's a great question so um yeah i love that question okay so there's a curriculum that i've been touring across the u.s and europe the last few years and it has to do with uh, power and gender, exploring power and gender through dance. And the skill set that we build in that curriculum is about being willing in moments where we might feel like a victim, 
being willing to see the experience of the other person and being willing to move forward as a team together to see what there is to learn and to stay in and, and to stay in relation to not let that fracture the community or the uh, the the desire for intimacy that brought us together in the first place and um, one of the things that I have seen come out of that over the years is that people's ability to forgive each other and to um, perhaps shift what they're available for, but to continue to be in relation and with respect with each other has greatly increased. I remember last summer there was someone who, um, who had repeatedly um, was a was a woman who had repeatedly pointed to men and walked away from connections with them and been like they did this to me, um, you know, and and had been part of ostracizing some of the men um, who were then no longer feeling at home in their own communities. And this person, after uh, doing some of these workshops, then said, you know, the more that I learn to trust what I want and how to communicate it, the more comfortable I feel exploring and experimenting with new people without being afraid that something is going to happen that will feel painful or rupture our connection. Mm-hmm. And it was that moment that she said that, where she was like, this is my agency. This is the part I can be responsible for. And I can see how that now allows me to contribute more to these men that I care about, that I'm in relation to, was huge. And that's an example of what building community resilience can look like. Mm-hmm. Can we, I think maybe this will be the last topic, can we talk a little bit about gender? I know that's another huge area for you. Um, Yeah. And the, where do you see healing happening, let's say, between, and well, let's say around issues of gender, you know, gender identity, and the, the almost seemingly like internal struggle between, um, let's say men and women, you know, if we want to have a binary, because, yeah, I mean, personally, I'm not, I'm finding it hard to find where the redemption happens and the healing happens. I'll put it that way. Um, There seems, there's a lot of rage. There's a lot of valuing of the expression of it, which is really important. And as someone who's a man, I'm wondering how might sexuality be reimagined as something other than like a battle between quote the sexes? You know, how do we position healing in a way that doesn't actually reinforce um, hard binaries and hard stereotypes? Yeah. Well, I think what Um, there's a few different ways to respond and the the big 
through line I see between what we've been talking about around race and, and shifting the attention to gender is about shifting from a culture of separation to a culture of interconnectedness. And the kind of old school paradigm of gender was the culture of separation that, that there's men and there's women and it's binary and we're at war with each other. And the new way of looking at that is how do we acknowledge, um, how does everyone have an empowering relationship with gender? How do we support that? How do we collectively dismantle um, what being socialized in a binary or socialized as a man or a woman has done? How do we then recover what is actually true about who we are and and then support each other to to express what is our unique gender expression <laughs> and so there is and, and i and similar to what i was saying earlier about you know people have gotten so afraid of power that they don't understand that we've only been looking at the shadow of dominance and submission, and there's also a light and wisdom there, I would say the same of gender, right? It's not like the goal is for us to all have these androgynous experiences where we mute our gender expression, but mm -hmm. rather that there can be power in masculine expression. There can be power in feminine gender expression. There is, There are so many different... Um, cultures around the world that where there are five genders or three genders or two spirit people and when you see that you understand how much of a cultural construction the binary is and I don't think it's serving us anymore mm -hmm. and so when we look for a culture of of interconnectedness it means it means being willing to heal personally and collectively and to be curious about what is really the gender expression that is most aligned for us now and distinguishing sex from gender, right? Gender is a socialized uh, experience. Sex is your physical anatomy. And gender is, um, you know, I think what success looks like when we're not in the the words of you know battle of the sexes success looks like okay i know what my sex is i know what my gender is i know that those are distinctly different and i have done a supported inquiry to know what is my true expression and when i look at other people i can see who they really are and I can also see what their sex and their gender is. And I know that who they are is actually bigger than those components. And I'm also able to see how their sex and their gender has impacted their life. And when we have that kind of clarity about who we are and our ability to see others, that is where I see us going. That is what success can look like. Because from there, we can create anything. Yeah. Um, 
Is that answering your question? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, and the thing is, it's actually a really fun process, right? And it's like, for 15 years, I did women's work, and I worked a lot with women who had been sexually abused by men. And I gotta tell you, I remember I was dating someone years ago who was like, I don't know how that can be your work. And I thought, you know what? It's not really that hard because I get to be with the people who are choosing to heal. In fact, it's deeply inspiring. And it is and to be present to the to the resilience that they are living is so inspiring. And I think when we look right now, yes, it's the Me Too era, and yes, that there are ways that we are looking at people's suffering. But let me tell you, if we start looking for people's resilience, the amount of healing that we're capable of, the amount of recovery, even myself, you know, I've been raped like most people I know, but the way that we walk in the world, the amount of healing and forgiveness that has happened is extraordinary and a deep source of inspiration for us. And I think what I see you walking through your days with so much is the role of joy and creativity in that that seems so central to how you meet people, to how you meet me. Mm. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Thank you. Because for it can that. yeah. It can get dense, you know? I mean, this work is really important and it can get really dense and intellectual and rational and very much focusing only on the things that have gone wrong, you know, the places of harm. And I appreciate so much. I mean, you can hear it in your voice all the time, the amount of joy and creativity that you bring to Mm. difficult subject matter, to difficult experiences that simply because they're difficult doesn't mean they also can't be joyful and grief soaked and creative in how we relate to each other and to ourselves around this kind of work. Yeah, thank you. (laughs) I'm so grateful for that. You know, and grief really kind of does it for us. Like grief takes the suffering and then it just lightens us up. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it, uh, Sabanku would say grief dissolves your limitations and opens possibility. And so that joy that is in me is, is, not because I have avoided that which pains me, but it is mm-hmm. actually just the opposite. It is that I have welcomed it and I have cried over it and I have I have made dances about it. Mm. And and that is where the joy comes from. And so for people who want to connect with you more, who want to follow what you're doing, um, can you just give a brief maybe summary of upcoming things that you're doing where you're doing them and how people might be able to um, find out more about you and get in touch with you yeah absolutely so um my website is kind of the hub for staying connected and it's embodymorelove.com so that's e-m-b-o-d-y m-o-r-e-l-o-v-e.com and i've got a newsletter that you can join right there on the homepage. Um, some things that are coming up for me is I've got this new book that you just got to read a chapter of um, that is on transforming whiteness in dance and sexuality communities. And I am starting to offer live workshops with a dear collaborator of mine um, in Mazin. 
and bringing that work more to um, different communities across the U.S. right now. Um, I also do one-on-one coaching with people, and I particularly work with uh, people around gender and race and intimacy and uh, power dynamics in your own sexual life. Um, And that is something that I do online. So I have clients internationally um, that work with me. And the other big piece uh, for me that I'm focusing on is my show, Waters of the Soul, is actually a, a solo show that is combined with an erotic grief ritual. And so that's gonna be happening in the Bay in the spring and details will be coming out in my newsletter. Um, but those are some of the big things that I'm offering. And then I do a leadership program for facilitators changing our culture of intimacy and that's called Do Good Things With Power. All of those things you can find at my website, embodymorelove.com. Great, thanks so much, C. Yeah. Thanks for being with me tonight. Oh my God, my pleasure. Thank you so much. This is such a rich opportunity and I so appreciate you and what you're creating through this podcast. Great, thank you. This has been good. Um, Okay, so I'm going to sign off and uh, thank you for joining me today on the donkey and the bridge. Broken sundown, fatherless showdown Burn every swollen lip, bottle sip Yeah, I suck dick, loose grip on gravity force Sky blinding, crumbling walls Never sweep away my memories of Children's things, a young mother's love Before the yearning song of flesh on flesh Young hearts burst open, wounds bleed fresh a young brother, skinny and tall, my older walks oceanward in somber slumber, sleeping flowers in the water, but I'm just his daughter, walking down an icy grave, leading to my schizophrenic father, weeping willow, won't you wallow louder, searching for my father's power. Wielded darkness when he was violent